I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, as we continue through uh, our study of the book of Hebrews, uh, there are some mixed feelings I have when I'm here. One is joy, just love uh, to be able to be with you this morning. Another one is a little bit of nervousness. I felt this last night, perhaps even more severe uh, than this morning. Uh, that is uh, just seeing like real eyeballs out there. Uh, when I preach. I'm used to a little camera right here staring at that. And so uh, I had a few people who were here last night said, you know, after about 10 minutes, you seem to calm down. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I joke around. I never took any classes on, uh, you know, being a TV personality or uh, acting or video. And so uh, it's been a learning experience the last 10 weeks. Thank you for putting up with uh, this preacher. They, they didn't have those classes in seminary. So, um, and, uh, and then, of course, one of the other emotions I feel is longing, longing to be with the whole body of Christ and looking forward to that. Th this present condition that we're in is a reminder of the fact that things are imperfect. Things are imperfect because of sin. Remember, the entrance of sin, through sin comes death and disease. And uh, it's just uh, a reminder that one day we will experience, again, a full fellowship without any concerns, not one concern about germs, uh, as we're in heaven. Um, at the, I just think of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we're enjoying Christ together in a banquet uh, uh, and fellowshipping and praising his name. Uh, so today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. Uh, we're going to look at two paragraphs together, and we're going to do so in a survey fashion. I'm going to try to help you understand what's going on in the passage. It maybe won't be quite at the depth as we normally do, but then I will draw some applications for us. So we're going to close out this fourth warning passage at the end of chapter 10 today, and then uh, that'll set us up for the next four weeks. The next four weeks are going to be wonderful reflection on the great example list, the exemplar list of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And so I look forward to doing that with you as well. But today, I think this passage has uh, some very helpful things for us as well. Um, as we look at these words of warning, these are some very hard words that the author of Hebrews has for his original readers and for us by extension. Now, when we have a hard word of warning to say to someone, I think it's normally better that we follow the pattern of the author of Hebrews here. As I said before, he has two paragraphs and what he does in those paragraphs is he mixes together two types of admonition. He starts with a strong confrontation, strong words of warning. That's the first paragraph. But then he mixes into it words of comfort and encouragement, uh, uh, fervent exhortations in the second paragraph. I think the author of Hebrews is like a parent who is pleading with their young adult child. The parent perhaps has noticed, you know, in some situations this is true, the parent has noticed that uh, there are some alarming patterns in the lifestyle of their child, and so that a loving parent, will, although it's a difficult conversation, will take them aside and bring those things to their attention, right? And will say, I know you're, you're an adult and you're making your own choices, but... Let me just say, I'm, I'm observing these things, and this is where I'm afraid it's going to go. Now, any wise parent in a conversation like that, 
I think, will not just air their list of grievances, you know, and just hammer down on, okay, here are the four things that you're doing that's alarming. No, I think a wise parent will also look for ways to balance that, to soften that with words of encouragement. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here. Strong confrontation, but then ending with words of encouragement. I think those words of encouragement will be good for us. Again, just because this is a survey, let me help you understand what's going on here. As I said, two paragraphs. So look down in your Bible. Two paragraphs. Verses 26 through 31. That's one paragraph. Verses 32 through 39 is the second paragraph. In both paragraphs, the author works in groups of two. So in the first paragraph, he has two consequences. They're actually both found uh, in near the beginning of the passage, at the end, it's one at the end of verse 26 and one at the beginning of verse 27. Consequence, number one, if you walk away from Jesus, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And consequence number two, if you walk away, there'll be a fearful expectation of judgment. So you've got these two consequences at the beginning of the first paragraph. And in both of these sections, the author ends the same way. He gives two final words, okay? And so in the first paragraph, he'll give a final word that comes from the Old Testament. So you're looking down in your Bible, look at verse 30 and look for quotation marks to know when he's quoting the Old Testament. He says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. That comes from two texts in the Old Testament. So as he's warning them and giving them the consequences, he's saying, let me show you what the Bible, what scripture says about that. He gives that final word. And then right below that, verse 31, is the author's final word himself. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Okay, so these two paragraphs. Two consequences followed by two final words. Okay, second paragraph um, is set up in a similar way. There are two encouragements or exhortations. You can see that in verse 32. But, number one, recall the former days. Remember, he's softening now. Recall the former days. Okay, and then verse 35, that's the second encouragement. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Don't throw it away. Okay, so he gives us two exhortations, and he follows them with, two final words, like he did in the first paragraph. And again, the first final word comes from Scripture. Look down at verse 37. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. For, and you see quotation mark, now he's quoting the Old Testament. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. It comes from one passage. And then the next phrase, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's another Old Testament text. So the author of Hebrews is saying, look at what the scriptures say about what I'm saying. And then he gives his own final summary in verse 39. Okay, so that's the survey. Let's look at it a little bit closer and just walk through this passage together. So in the first part of the passage, the author has two consequences of rejecting Jesus. I want you to remember that he's imploring readers not to abandon their profession of faith in Jesus and go back to a religion that was more culturally accepted, Judaism. Perhaps they would endure 
less suffering at the hands of the Romans if they would just go back into Judaism and worship the old way, okay? And so what he's dealing with is that live situation. And so he says, if you do that, there are gonna be consequences, okay? First one, verse 26, look there. For if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, okay? The truth is what the author of Hebrews has been telling them the last three chapters. You know, uh, all this stuff about having a great high priest, Jesus? His name is Jesus, okay? If you get that information, but then you continue to sin deliberately, then he says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If you reject Jesus, the author says, no sacrifice is left. The words no longer in verse 26 could be translated no more or no other. I prefer the translation, no other sacrifice for sins remains. And the author of Hebrews has made that point in different places. He's used language like this. Uh, you have your Bible open to this text. Look at Hebrews 10 and verse 18, just before. He just finished making this point. He says, where there is forgiveness of these, you go up to verse 27, sins and lawless deeds. Where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Okay, the point the author has been making is Jesus' one-time sacrifice is sufficient to cover the sins of uh, all, all the sins of his followers. Okay, he, there, he, there doesn't have to be any sort of like animal sacrifice after him. It's just Jesus' one-time sacrifice. Now, if these original readers, they might want to simply go back to the way things were, you know, with uh, the old established way of worshiping with old priests and animal sacrifices, but the author here says, those old sacrifices no longer accomplish anything. If you walk away from Jesus, no sacrifice is left. It's like he's saying this. You think that there are two options for your worship. Option A, Jesus. Option B, multitude of animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant. And the author is saying, there is no option B. All you have is option A. That's the only way for sins to be forgiven. Now, if you reject Jesus, he continues in verse 27. He gives us the other expectation. And we can go th quickly through this. It's right at the beginning of the verse, and it ends his first sentence but a fearful expectation of judgment. So the second consequence, you will face judgment at the hands of God. Now I want you to see in the rest of this verse, I'm just gonna read through it, how he describes this judgment. He says it's a fearful expectation of judgment. Look at uh, the middle of verse eight, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Okay, again, it's a survey. Let me just help you, I think, see a little bit here. He, he describes the nature of the judgment they'll face in three ways. First, he, he describes it as being a fearful thing. 
It's interesting, the actual wording puts emphasis that the consequence itself, the actual consequence is the fearful expectation of it. It's, if you go back into Judaism, you know what you have. Your outlook isn't going to be one of peace and harmony. Your outlook will be terrifying. It will be dreadful. Okay? And then he continues. He describes it as a fury of fire. Your judgment will be fiery. Be fiery if you walk away from faith in Jesus Christ. Here I think he's alluding to a text he's going to quote later, Isaiah 26, that has these same words, fury of fire and consuming adversaries. In that original passage, the judgment of God comes down like fire on the enemies of Israel. A fury of God's fire and his judgment rains down on them. So if you leave option A, there's no other option. And what you can expect, dreadfully expect, is God's fiery judgment upon you. Then in verses 28 and 29, I just would say the third way he describes this judgment is it's significant. And he does something he's done in other places in the book of Hebrews where he says, like in chapter, I think it's chapter two, right? Where where as he's walking through the text, he says, you know, there was consequence for people who disobeyed the Mosaic law. And then he asks, how much worse do you think it will be for people who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ? Here in this text, though, he describes these people in three ways, and they're just very interesting ways. He says, there are those who trample underfoot God's Son, who profane the blood of the covenant that was sanctified for them, or that was used to sanctify them, and then who outrage God's spirit by rejecting Jesus. This passage, I think the author is intending to shock his hearers. He's, I believe, intentionally wanting to do something that would cause them to feel revulsion in their spirit. So he uses this like, very strong language. Those people who, who walk away from Christ and go back to Judaism, it's like they're tramping underfoot Jesus, the Son of God. They're calling his blood that he shed for our sins not a holy thing, but an unclean or a profane or a common thing. And they are outraging God's spirit of grace. I think that the author's point here is he wants his readers to hear this description and say something like this. Oh, no. That will never be true of me. I will never tramp on the Son of God. Okay? Now, I don't think his point is to specifically reveal here the true spiritual condition of every one of his readers. Again, I think he's dealing with a mixed bag. I think that there are some people who are professing genuine faith in Jesus Christ, but there are others who are simply professing, they're pretending, they're not genuine and real. I don't think the author's telling us here who's who. But he's simply standing in front of them one last time, 
and he is saying, if you do this, if you walk away from Jesus Christ, you are repudiating him wholly, and you will face significant judgment from God. That leads him to issue two final words here in verses 30 and 31, two definitive words. The first one comes from the Old Testament. Look in verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Here I love the natural impulse of the author of Hebrews. He does this over and over and over again. When he closes a section, when he closes an argument, what does he close with? You can say it out loud if you know. Verse 30. What does he close with? Scripture. Scripture. His Bible. Okay, and so what he's doing in verse 30 is he's basically saying, what you are hearing from me, Hebrew people, what you're hearing from me is not just my own opinion. God in Scripture agrees with me. And his final words here all have to do with the character of God. So as he's standing in front of these people and he's confronting them, uh, you know, with the, the reality, if you walk away from God, this is going to happen. He reminds them of the character of God. Here, uh, in these two verses, he, or this verse, verse 30, he quotes from Deuteronomy 32, two consecutive verses in verse Deuteronomy 32, which is the Song of Moses. Near the very end of Moses' life, he composed a song that he wanted to be an encouragement to the people of Israel for generations and generations. In, that, in this part of the song, what, he is, what Moses is saying, he's talking about the character of God and the fact that God will judge the enemies of Israel. He will judge those who stand in opposition to him. And so the author of Hebrews is here saying, if you reject Jesus, God will stand in opposition to you. Vengeance is his. He will repay. The Lord will judge his people. To that, the author gives his own final word in verse 31. And verse 31 is a chilling verse, isn't it? It's a chilling verse. The author of Hebrews just gave the Old Testament, and then he says, okay, now let me summarize that for you. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a dreadful thing. The phrase, to fall into the hands of, is an old expression that meant that you would become completely vulnerable to a person or a people. And here the author of Hebrews says, uh, if you walk away from Jesus Christ, go back to Judaism, rejecting Christ, you will fall into the hands of the living God. You'll be completely vulnerable to his judgment. So I love the author's impulse, ending with Scripture, and then he kind of states his own view of that too. I think when we issue words of warning to another believer who's struggling with sin, I think we'd be wise to follow the same practice, right? Scripture. You can't do this. Look at what the Scriptures say about this. You can't keep going that way. And then I think it's also wise to add in our own perspective. And let me just tell you, not only does Scripture say that, I believe what the Scripture is saying. As I stand before you today, I'm warning you. I have full confidence in what Scripture says. You need to turn. Okay, so the author of Hebrews does that. Strong words of warning. But let's look at the second paragraph in our last five minutes. Verses 32 through 39. Here he mixes in encouragement. 
he continues to reason with his readers here by softening it or mitigating the warning and what he's saying. His encouragement can be seen in two exhortations or imperatives, and then he gives two final words. The first imperative is found in uh, verse 32, so look there, That's, and it goes through verse 34. Let's read those verses. It says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Here, the author of Hebrews is going to encourage them. He's going to say, I want you to remember your faithful days. There were very good days for you in your stand for Jesus Christ. And what he says here is that these professing believers formerly faced all kinds of different struggles and afflictions, including helping people who were in prison for their faith. Now, if we stop and think about the context here again for a while, I, I think they're in Rome in the middle of the 60s AD. Who are some of those people who are in prison? It might be people like Simon Peter and Paul the Apostle. So the author of Hebrews says, I just want to remind you that you are willing to stand. You are willing to stand with Jesus' followers, Paul or Peter or other prisoners, putting yourself in jeopardy. And not only that, you also, some of you endured the plundering of your property. People had seized their homes, okay? As bad as it, I think it, it would ever get for us or has gotten for us, I don't think any of us have experienced that, right? Where because of our profession of faith in Jesus Christ, someone comes along and they, steals, they steal our house, they confiscate it. Yet some of these professing believers had. And so Paul, or uh, the, the author of Hebrews, I should say, uh, reminds us as well why they had done that. What was the reason they did that? Uh, they endured these things because they knew that this was not their final abode. They knew that God would give them a better and an abiding inheritance, okay, that compelled them to stand for God even in the midst of trouble and difficulty. And so he's softening it. He's giving them encouragement. He says, you know, before you walk away, I just want to remind you. I want to remind you of what you've already been through. You took stands for Christ already. Remember those days. And then verses 35 and 36, the second encouragement. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. I'm in verse 35. You can look in your Bible there. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Here the author sounds like a Christian pleading with their friend who is stubbornly insisting on a sinful pattern who says to that friend, do not throw it all away. Don't throw it all away. You can't do this. You know better. Here the author of Hebrews says, do not throw away your confidence. That could be translated your boldness to profess Jesus Christ. Don't go back to Judaism just because it's easier. Don't throw away your boldness to profess faith in Jesus Christ. And he reminds them of the reason why they can't do that. 
Because if they continue to profess faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of this affliction, they will receive a great reward. Verses 35 and 36, he's basically saying here, boldness in Jesus, maintained, will bring great reward. Boldness in Jesus, maintained, will bring great reward. He's giving them these encouragements. He ends with two final words then, verses 37 through 39. He adds these to these two exhortations. The first word comes from the Old Testament. Verses 37 and 38 read, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. That is a quote from Isaiah chapter 26. We won't turn back there. But what's interesting to me about that quote and the quote that comes right after it are both of these quotes have to do with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a final word to motivate them to maintain their boldness in professing Jesus, he says, the Old Testament scriptures tell us that it won't be too long until the coming one will come and he will not delay. I think that text in Isaiah is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is, any moment... Christ could come back. He says it emphatically. The coming one, that's his name, will come. And he won't delay. So keep maintaining your faith. He adds to that another Old Testament verse, verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's a quote from the book of Habakkuk and the Old Testament scripture. And in my opinion, what he's doing here in this verse, I think, He's still talking about Jesus. Okay, and this is controversial. I don't have time to explain it all, but look at verse 38 again. But my righteous one, I think this is God referring to the Son in this verse. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Okay, so what he's saying here about Jesus in a context of a second coming is Jesus will not shrink back. He will continue in faithfulness. He will come. I think what the author of Hebrews is doing here is something similar that he's done in other places. Way back in Hebrews 2, uh, he quotes Psalm 8. And he talks about, you know, remember the verse that says he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Originally, I think he's talking about humanity in that verse, and then he gets to talk about Jesus in verse 9. In Hebrews 11, he'll do something similar. He'll talk about faith of human beings, old covenant faith, all this, this whole list of faithful people, right? Abraham, Moses, all these people, they're, they're faithful. And then by the end, he gets to Jesus in Hebrews 12, and he says, remember Jesus, look to him who is, and how does he describe Jesus there? He says, he is the author and perfecter of faith, or the founder and perfecter of faith. Okay, so in this text, I think he's in verse 38, he's talking about Jesus and he's reminding them, Jesus will come, he will not shrink back, he will come through, and then in verse 39, he applies it in his final word to his readers. Just as Jesus is one who's faithful, He's God's righteous one, and he won't shrink back. Look at verse 39. He makes his final encouragement to them. But we, 
We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Here the author applies Christ's example of faith and faithfulness to his readers in his own final words, and he, he joins with them. We are the sort of people who will be like Jesus, who won't shrink back, but who have faith. I love this last verse because it helps us understand a little bit more about like what faith looks like. What faith looks like in a moment of persecution is not shrinking back. They're the opposite, see? Shrinking back and faith are the opposite. If someone withdraws from the author's community of faith to those who are committed to Christ, he concludes here in his own final word, they will be destroyed and they will not preserve their souls. I think the author's final words challenge us with this question. Will you live your life, your days, in righteous faith or in shrinking fear? Will you be one of those who maintain their commitment to Christ, clinging to him through any challenge in this life? Or will you be of those who shrink back from professing faith in Jesus to their own destruction? Perhaps you've been in a position at work before that was difficult. People were mocking someone at work, a Christian, what did you do in that moment? Did you take a stand for Jesus, or for that person, or did you shrink back? And what will you do in future moments when persecution comes? Will you stand with Christ and his followers, or will you shrink back? As we close, I just want to give you a very quick illustration about my grandmother. My grandmother is now with the Lord. I grew up in western Pennsylvania, and I had the privilege of living on the same, in the same area as my grandmother. We're actually next-door neighbors. My grandparents bought property all over a hill in Clymer, Pennsylvania, and then they started giving property to all of their children, and so the whole family lived on the hillside. I thought that was normal. I thought everyone had the privilege of living right next door to their grandparents. Well, one of the things I want to just remind you, or I want to just inform you of regarding my grandmother is, I have fond memories of going into her house and having conversations with the family. She had a little home, and inside of the house, uh, as soon as you went inside of the house, there was, a, there was a, a dining room area, and that's where everyone had conversations. That's where you talked. That's where you caught up and and uh, matter of fact, we spent so much time in that little area of the house that she got rid of her hard dining room chairs and she replaced them with office chairs that could recline and were more comfortable. Okay, that was, that was the conversation. So I remember going in there multiple times throughout the week. Adults would be around the table, children sitting on the floor, joining in the conversation. And so I remember sitting many times in the stoop at my grandmother's house and looking up at a sign at a sign in her house. It was a sign of scripture, scripture text. It was, a, it was a quotation from Joshua chapter 24, 
where at the end of that book, Joshua gives a final charge to the people of Israel, and he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. And then here's a quote on my grandmother's sign. He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That sign was a constant testimony to me of the decision my grandmother made, her resolve to stand with Jesus. No choice B for my grandmother. It was Jesus and him alone. There are perhaps some within our body who come here week after week who would consider abandoning Jesus, not for Judaism, but perhaps for some other selfish pursuit or pleasure, to do your own things, to get what you really want, or perhaps to pursue a different God. To those people who would go a different way, I would say the same judgment would apply to you. All you'd have to look forward to would be a fearful dread and expectation of a fiery judgment that would be more significant than anyone who disobeyed the law of Moses. But won't you recall your former days? Remember the acts of faithfulness in the past and continue to hold fast to your profession of faith in Jesus. Let's close in a word of prayer. Um, after I pray, we'll sing one song together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time and I pray that you'd be honored and glorified today by our worship. Thank you for this text of scripture. I would pray for any person here today who has thoughts of walking away from Jesus and professing him to something else. I don't know what else it could be, but something else. Lord, help them see that there is no other sacrifice for sins. There's no other sacrifice that could cover them. Only Jesus' one-time act. Pray they'd renew their commitment to him today. In Jesus' name, amen.